Angus at Work, a podcast for the profit-minded cattlemen. Brought to you by the Angus Beef Bulletin, we have news and information on health, nutrition, marketing, and management. So let's get to work, shall we? Hello and welcome to Angus at Work. I'm your host, Casey Brown. Does it feel like supply chain is a dirty word right now? You hear it on the radio, you see it in the news, and I've seen plenty of memes about it on social media. But really, that's not exactly what we're here to talk about today. We're going to talk about shortening that supply chain. Yes, direct marketing has gained popularity since the pandemic started, but it's not a new concept. It is a subject near and dear to my heart because direct marketing was a large part of my own family's operation back home in Indiana. I got to sit down with two experts from South Dakota State University about direct marketing beef and the intricacies that can go into it to be successful. So let's dig in. All right, hello, this is Casey Brown. We are in Rapid City, South Dakota for the Range Beef Cow Symposium. This conference is hosted every two years um, and we're really excited that we actually get to attend this year. I'm sitting down with Dr. Amanda Blair and Dr. Christina Baker. Thank you for joining me this morning. Can you tell me a little bit about your background with the beef industry? Well, sure, I, I grew up on a small beef operation and then got into kind of the beef industry through the, the meat science world. I, I went to college and got involved in, in meat science and uh, came to South Dakota State University in a professor role back in 2007 and have just kind of continued in that area. But South Dakota's really been a state that, you know, a strong, strong tradition and, and a lot of diversity in the beef industry. So it's really been a fun experience to, to work with beef producers um, and, and kind of bring that, that meats perspective to them and a lot of the research and, and extension and outreach that we do. And Dr. Baker? So I grew up on a purebred Red Angus operation in southwest Minnesota, and I got into the meat industry by meat judging in FFA, um, and I came to SDSU as a high schooler doing those meat competitions, and um, I came to SDSU for my undergrad and I worked in the meat lab, and then I, um, you know, just stayed in the meat um, in the meat realm, and I did meat judging for collegiately, and um, then Last year, I joined staff as an Extension Meat Science Field Specialist, and I'll be starting as an assistant professor next week. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So your topic this morning was on direct marketing and what um, readers need to know about the management considerations and then also what, what they need to know about the meat side, too. Um, we all know that COVID has shaken everything up. Um, tell me a little bit about um, kind of why this has become such a big big topic right now. Sure. I think, you know, Dr. Baker and I really noticed um, shortly after the the pandemic and the, you know, everything kind of started to, to shut down, um, we started getting a lot of calls from producers that were interested in doing more direct marketing because they were seeing what was going on in the, you know, globally with the pandemic in terms of short shortages um, caused by supply chain issues and, and declining um processing capacity because of plants shutting down. So, you know, we've all seen pictures of the grocery store shelves being empty, um, you know, no meat on the shelves. 
And that really got a lot of them thinking, well, you know, I'm sitting here with beef, maybe it's overfinished or I can't get it into a feedlot or, or things like that. How can I help to, to solve that issue? And um, one of those routes was going through smaller processors and selling meat directly to consumers. Um, you know, when we talk about that's a, a situation I've had a lot of people, you know, more recently maybe challenge that and say, well, it's all just going to go back the way it was. You know, there's meat on the shelves now, so people are, you know, they're going to lose interest in, you know, buying directly. But I think, you know, maybe in a case where, you know, that was the only reason that, that consumers were coming to a, a producer is, is because there was no meat on the shelves. But I think it, if if a producer can kind of be creative and think about it, there's a lot of other reasons that consumers may want to buy directly from a producer and in those very widely. It may be something specific about the meat itself. Um, you know, a certain method that you do use to produce it or a certain characteristic of that product. You know, we're, we're definitely seeing this shift in people wanting that farm to table experience, you know, or knowing where their food comes from, keeping their dollar local. So if it's more based, if the reason to come and buy directly is more based on some of those more credence attributes, I think then there's a potential for, you know, us, you know, a producer to maintain that market and potentially grow it if they if they're willing to put the work in and in, in growing that enterprise. Absolutely. My family actually did a lot of direct marketing. So I, I love this topic. Sure. Um, so speaking for producers, how far back do we need to start thinking um, if we're going to direct market our cattle? Um, how do we get started? How, what do we need to think about first? Well, I think, you know, really thinking about your, your whole operation, um, you know, in terms of, of finishing cattle, you know, is this, is this a situation that you're set up to do? Are you close to feed resources? Do you have facilities that you could feed or finish, whether it's a grass or grain finishing situation? You know, do you have those resources? Um, you know, is it something that you can, can financially, you know, work with? You know, there's a, a lot of risk in keeping those animals for a longer period of time. You know, you, you aren't guaranteed that they're going to survive and do well. Um, so that's something to consider. So small, starting on a smaller um, scale might be um, something to, to consider as you're getting started in this. I think in terms of, of what can affect that ultimate product, you know, we do a lot of research in an area called fetal programming, and that shows us that even the gestating calf and how that cow is managed can affect the outcome of that product. So, you know, we won't go kind of dive into that, but I think it, it really is a consideration, not just, you know, during that finishing period, but, but that entire that animal's entire life, you know, has it stayed healthy? Has it stayed on a, a, a kind of a growing plane of nutrition? Um, what's its nutrition been? Those things can all play into what that final product um, turns into. From a facility standpoint, I think there's options out there for people. You know, you can think about you know, if, if you don't have those facilities or resources or that knowledge to actually finish cattle, which which takes a considerable amount of knowledge to be able to feed, especially a high finishing diet. or the high, reason there are experts who do this. Right, a high grain diet. I mean, you know, you could seek out a, a custom finisher, a, a small feedlot in your area that maybe custom finishes or, you know, a fellow producer that's doing this for their own cattle and maybe could add yours in on a custom basis. And that's going to allow you to keep, you know, keep ownership of those cattle and have have sway over those marketing decisions, but maybe don't have to have those facilities and resources to hand. You know, if you're wanting to do it yourself, I think those are things to consider. You know, do you, do you have feeding capacity? Um, you know, what are your facilities like? Can you, you know, if somebody came on your place and they looked around, you know, that consumer perception is huge. So, you know, would they see, you know, 
clean pens, clean animals? Would they see, you know, did you did you take the time to install a windbreak to keep them out of the wind in the wintertime? Um, those things that maybe we think about more in terms of animal comfort, but also can can affect performance. But from that consumer lens, they can also, you know, influence our marketing. You know, you could showcase something like that. Here's how we take care of our animals, you know, to ensure they're they're comfortable, but also ensuring, you know, high, you know, acceptable meat quality. So from, from those standpoints, that's kind of some of those initial considerations just about thinking about getting into it. You know, what kind of numbers do I have um, to, to put into this type of a, an enterprise? Do I have the facilities? Do I have somebody close by that I can do this with? And then making sure that you have a processor that you can go to. You know, a lot of people, you know, came, came to us and were talking about this and then realized that these small processors are booked out mm-hmm. one and two years in advance. So building that relationship with the processor is certainly something you want to do before, you know, you've got cattle ready to, to slaughter. Right. Dr. Baker, you were talking about the different types of processors. Can you tell us a little bit um, what producers should keep in mind um, when they are finding a processor, especially when it's so far out, when they're so booked? Sure. So when it comes down to, I think it really comes down to the type of sales that you want to have. If you want to be able to sell beef by the quarter or the side, um, you can look into that uh, custom processing um, because what that is is essentially the the cattle producer is going to sell the customer the live animal, and then the, they can deliver the animal to the small to the processor um, for the owner of the animal, and you know then they can decide how they want the meat cut up themselves. Um, but if you want to kind of take it as a smaller scale and be selling individual cuts, then you've got to be looking at a either a federally or state inspected meat processing facility. Um, so kind of knowing how you want your marketing to look um, and how you're selling is going to be pretty important in choosing which processors that you want to approach. One thing I hadn't realized, you mentioned a lot of the small rural processors, um, but you can't sell any of that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yep. So the meat that is that goes through a custom exempt plant, um, the owner of the animal needs to get that meat back. So the livestock producer can sell to somebody else um, as long as somebody else is the owner of the animal, they can get that meat back. Um, but once it's stamped that not for sale, it's truly not for sale. That's not so the, the butcher doesn't sell it to somebody else. It's so you don't sell it to anybody else. So that's um, all of those sales of the, of the meat need to happen as the animal is live. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, Dr. Blair, you mentioned, um, can we talk about some of the genetics that people need to think about um, to ensure that, that good, high-quality eating experience? Sure. I think when you think about selling directly to consumers, one thing to, to really keep in mind is that consumers expect an eating experience as good or better than what they would get at retail. And I think most of them would expect it's going to be better. So to, to get that high quality product, you know, there's lots of different routes and there's lots of different programs, but I think, you know, one of the main things to think about if you're, if you're wanting to sell direct to consumers is that what they consider palatability is, you know, they're going to desire beef that's flavorful, tender, and juicy. And one of the easiest ways to accomplish that is by, you know, making sure you have some genetic potential in those cattle to, to marble. We know that marbling is is highly related to a positive eating experience. 
you know, that's why we see the premiums that we see for things like, you know, CAB level product or prime, you know, anything with a higher level of marbling is going to elevate the chances of having that positive eating experience. Now that's not to say you can't have a good eating experience with, with other types of products, but one of the most consistent ways to, to do that is by focusing on marbling. And I think in terms of the genetics, you know, I would say it's, it's seeking out the, the cattle that have that genetic potential to marble. Um, you know, there's a lot of flexibility what those cattle might look like. But again, it comes back to knowing what your cattle are. And, and sometimes producers just, just don't know that. You know, they maybe sell their calves at weaning and they don't know what goes on during the feeding or finishing phase or into the packing plant. So that's one aspect that we would highly recommend is trying to, to find an avenue to where you can figure out what your cattle are. You know, are they are they very high quality in terms of that quality grade or, or high marbling or are they average? And that's something that you want to elevate through your selection criteria. Um, but that's that's one of the ways that, that we were you know, one of the things we would recommend looking at is, is you know, what's your marbling level? And how are ways or how can people figure, figure out what their cattle are? Sure. It's, you know, there's, there's different ways to do it. You know, some people on the live side can utilize ultrasound. Now, that's not a perfect method, but it is correlated to actual marbling if you have an, an ultrasound technician that can, can evaluate that for you. Um, but the best way is to, to get into the plant and actually evaluate it or have someone do that for you. Um, you know, have a, a university meat specialist come and, and help you or there's different trainings. We offer a program called Beef 2020 where producers get to come in and actually see carcasses and learn how that quality and yield grading, you know, is applied. You know, it's not something that you need to have a, a grader actually do. You're not going to sell this meat as, you know, it's not graded as prime or choice, but it's knowing, yep, we've got a certain level of marbling there. Another way to go about that is, you know, putting your animals in a, a program like, you know, SDSU has calf value discovery. Other states have similar type ranch to rail programs where you can feed out your own cattle, you know, a small group. You know, you get the, the feeding um, performance data, but you also get the carcass data back from the, the plant and you can see, you know, what, what those cattle, you know, look like. You know, I, I married into a, an Angus um, family and that, that's a program that really kind of set them on a path that they're currently on. You know, back in the 90s, they did a calf value discovery program and realized there was a $200 swing from the top to the bottom of that small group in terms of what the value was. Nowadays, we're looking at more like an, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars swing in the value of those carcasses. So, you know, I think there's there's ways that you can get that, whether it be, you know, on the ultrasound of the live animal all the way to, to getting that actual data taken in a small locker or through a, a you know, a ranch to rail or calf value discovery program. Awesome. And it's it's so important to know what we have so we can make better products for our consumers. Right. And I think that's one thing that, that we kind of lose sight of is, you know, First of all, knowing what you have and trying to trying to get a handle on that, but then can we consistently produce that? And I think that's one thing we've seen in the beef industry is, you know, when you when you look back and you see demand, you know, on the decline from the you know back in the '90s, especially, um, we knew we had a consistency issue, and I think that's something that the industry as a whole has worked very diligently on is improving consistency and we've seen quality grades continually climb we've seen tenderness improve pretty markedly over that period of time and that's you know to the you know kudos to all the the producers out there that have really 
you know, taken hold of this issue and said, you know, we need a, a, you know, nationally a more consistent product. But I think as you're thinking about a direct marketing program where you just have a few animals to market through that, it becomes even more critical because, you know, they can link that right back to you. It's not, you know, oh, there's some beef producer out there somewhere that produced this. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a name and a face and and know who to go to. Absolutely. Um, So, Dr. Baker, you were talking about um, what to expect when you've got a finished animal, you send them to the packer, and you said you get a lot of yield grade questions. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the amount of meat that you get back, especially in the we see this a lot when it's um, custom animals where somebody will call up and they say, you know, I had a 1,400-pound animal and I only got 400 pounds of meat back. And, you know, a lot of the time they actually go, well, the the packer stole my meat. Well, that's generally not the case. Um, So, you know, having that conversation of, you know, where does this – where did the where did the weight go? So you know, first talking about the dressing percentage, you know, uh, did you weigh that animal live with a full gut? And all of that goes away once the animal is a carcass. So you know, making sure that you're being consistent and realistic with those expectations. Um, animals that are going to be a full beef influence as opposed to a dairy type are going to have a little bit higher dressing percentage or if the animal was fatter or heavier muscle they're going to see an improvement in dressing percentage there Um, but then it kind of all comes down to how you want that carcass treated if you want it dry aged or if you want it um, or if you want it trimmed more than what you normally would see um, that's all going to impact the yield that you're going to get from the from the final product so um, also if you're going to get a boneless uh if you're going to get the entire carcass and boneless cuts you're going to give up a lot of that carcass yield um because you're throwing away all that bone so um kind of taking into consideration the different choices that you're making for the what cuts you want back are going to make a big difference in your overall yield absolutely um you mentioned some really great um resources or an infographic um to kind of help with that consumer education. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so there's a lot of universities that have developed infographics for this type of thing, especially in the last year when we've seen such a drive for um getting meat from the small meat processors. So the University of Minnesota has a really great one um actually for all species not just beef um that kind of goes through what to expect for um, the cuts that you can get out of a quarter of beef and it even goes into how much freezer space that you need and um, the types of costs that you should expect. Um, but then other universities also have that. So really a quick Google search and you know making sure that it comes from a university is probably really important because there's a lot of um, other things that are on the internet that may not be as accurate but you know it's it's really important for the producers to have an idea so when they're talking to their customers if they're new to the to the custom processing game um so that they can give them an idea so they're not caught off guard when they get their meat back and either it's way more than they expected or they don't have the freezer space um kind of covering all of those bases for somebody who's new to it or even mentioned just knowing that what kind of steaks you might get mm-hmm. if you get a half or a quarter 
Um, can you tell me some more about that? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we see a lot is somebody says, yeah, I'm going to get a, a side of beef, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get all of these T-bones and all of these um, ribeyes. That's how I'm going to get this, uh, anim this carcass cut up. Well, only about 20% of a carcass weight makes up the rib and the loin where you get those cuts from. So there's 80% of that weight that you still have to deal with. So whether that, so that's going to come in roasts and ground beef, whether you want it to or not, um, because they're not going to be good steaks. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if you're only getting one side, you're not going to get T-bones and strip loins and tenderloins because the strip loin and tenderloin are what make up the T-bone. So um, there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect with the average consumer today, kind of on carcass anatomy and where different cuts come from. So having those conversations so that they know that, no, you can't get an entire, you know, 400 pounds of T-bone out of one carcass. Um, so to manage those expectations appropriately. Perfect. Um, and you both mentioned consumer education is so important. How to accurately portray your own marketing and finishing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of times when we get down to talking about, you know, the, the differences in how we market and, and what's special or differentiates our product from what somebody else is producing or how they're producing it, you know, those are all things that, that consumers, you know, they want to know. They, you know, there's a more desire for knowing the story and the backstory of, of what's going on. I think that's what's driving a lot of them to this direct, direct consumer space. But, you know, just as a caveat, I think it's really important to not disparage other, you know, the entire industry, you know, let's not, you know, spite our nose or cut off our nose to spite our face kind of situation. You know, a, a consumer could come to you and you could tell them, you know, you're, you've got the safest, best meat in the whole wide world. And you could do it in a way that could scare them from, you know, you know, purchasing meat just back in the normal, you know, through the normal commodity chain. And that's really not what we want to do. You know, they may come to you and they may not like your product, but does that mean that they go back and, and, you know, buy another protein source because you've given them, you know, information that's made them, you know, potentially scared of buying beef in general. So I think, you know, doing it in a way that you can, you know, lift as you climb, you know, do it so that you're, you're promoting your product and what you do and how it's different, but not saying somebody else's is bad or, or unsafe or unwholesome is, you know, just maybe a, a final thing to think about as you're thinking about your marketing program. Perfect. All right. Excellent. That, um, it's about the end of our time, but I want to end on something. Um, I want to end on some good news. So tell me just something good that has happened to you recently. doesn't matter if it's personal or business or think of something good. Oh, <laughs> I recently got to go down to the Angus Convention in Fort Worth. So that was a really great experience to, to interact with those um, you know, different Angus producers and learn more about what they're doing to promote that breed. And I think that's, you know, again, I, you know, we're a ranching family and the Angus cattle are near and dear. So it was really fun to learn the latest and some of the genetic technologies and what's going on. So, you know, it's been a really fun thing to, to come back and talk to the family about and get two little boys. So they're just starting to get interested in, you know, you know, what's going on out there and, and you know, getting involved in, in the beef cattle side of things. So that's been really fun. Oh, cool. Dr. Baker, what's a good thing for you? Um, I would say that probably it's both personal and professional for me is that, um, so once I finished my PhD, I, I postdoced at SDSU for a while, and I am local to SDSU. And as a result of the pandemic, I was actually brought on as a field specialist to be support for the small meat processors in South Dakota. And um, it was a temporary position. And so then, you know, as as the year went on, we actually were able to um, 
find a position for me permanently at SDSU. So I'll right. be starting as an assistant professor here on Monday. So awesome. Yeah. That is good news. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate your insight. Listeners, if you want to learn more, you'll find our coverage of the Range Beef Calf Symposium in the Angus Beef Bulletin and the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. So make sure you're subscribed to both of those publications. You can find access to both of these, plus our digital and audio extras at angusbeefbulletin.com extra. That's E-X-T-R-A. And check out that extras tab at the top right. This has been Angus at Work, and thanks for listening.